morning. As the pastor told me earlier, I get to read the fun one today. It isn't? Both? <laughs> I'll get closer. comes from Ephesians 5 and 6. <clears throat> it's on page 829 in your pew Bible. <clears throat> Excuse me. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, his body of which he is Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery that I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife's the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. <clears throat> obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, Treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Good morning. How's everybody today? Got a lot of us here today. That's a good thing. Must be spring, right? Everybody's coming out of the woodwork. Well, at Sturbridge Village, the visitor center is all decorated already, too. And I'm like, well, it's not even Thanksgiving. Come on, give me a break. Anyway, we, we must be looking at something. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> I was like, it's almost too hot today for November. Anyway, um, that's not what I came to talk about. But that's all right. That's me, anyway. Um, how many of you? like to cook. All right, this church loves to cook. How many of you like to bake? There's a difference between cooking and baking. Yes. 
Okay. Well, I, I grew up um, loving cooking and baking, mostly baking. I prefer to bake. I, I like to bake rather than cook. Um, and my mom, I remember making cookies with my mom from pretty little. Um, I love making cookies at Christmas, and we had thousands of cookies. Um, but my father's father was a professional baker. When I was born, he was living in Florida, so I didn't see him too often, but when he'd come up, we'd always bake. And he would make Danish and all kinds of fancy things, and it was just so cool to just watch him make these things and try to get him to write down the recipes so that we could make them. And I am very fortunate that I have one of his cookbooks. It's kind of in bad shape because it's been through the war, but uh, literally. Um, but in it is a recipe. Oops, wrong side. It's hard to tell the freight from the top. Um, for one of the recipes that I still use today. It makes this. So my recipe has been modified because his recipe, my, well, let me tell you what my recipe calls for. My recipe calls for um, a, three pounds of raisins, a pound of citron, eight ounces of orange peel, eight ounces of lemon peel, eight ounces of cherries, eight ounces of pineapple, and eight ounces of um, nuts. But it also calls for a pound of flour, a pound of sugar, a pound of butter, and 10 eggs, and a lot of stuff. It makes 10 of these. Okay? His recipe calls for 12 pounds of sugar, 12 pounds of butter, 12, 15 pounds of flour. So you see, we cut it down a lot. Uh, <laughs> but it's really cool to have the original recipe that we could cut down to something that's a little more manageable. And as you can see, mine has been well-loved over the years. Um, and it's just such a cool thing to be able to have a recipe. And it's a complicated recipe. There's a lot of stuff in this. And you have to make sure you get the, the things right. So when you bake, it's important to follow a recipe. When you cook, you can kind of oh, throw a little of this or throw a little of that in. And it usually turns out OK. But when you bake, you have to kind of follow the recipe. Um, I started baking with my children when they were little. And I've started baking with Ben already. But one time, um, and Katie's going to hate me for this, but one time we were making pies for Thanksgiving, and she was helping, and we were making pumpkin pie, and I said, okay, can you get the spices to put in the, the mixture of the pumpkin and the milk and the, the eggs? And so she got the cinnamon and the garlic. <laughs> well, it started with a G, and it was sort of the right color for ginger. And before I realized it, we had garlic in our pumpkin pie. And that was not so cool. So it's important to follow the recipe. Now, when I looked at the scripture for this week, I thought, oh boy, another tough one. Where am I going with this? But then I realized, it's a recipe. God has given us a recipe right here. This whole book is a recipe. And, or well, it's like a cookbook anyway, maybe. There's a lot of little recipes in it. And this recipe today... I think is a recipe for a happy family. And if we're following the recipe, then we'll have a happy family. Whether it's a 
individual family or a church family or a town family, it's a recipe for a happy family. If everybody works with each other as though they were working with Jesus, that's how it wants, he wants it to be. And the cool thing about cooking today, when you look online, you can find recipes. A lot of times they have a video that shows you exactly how to do it. Well, we have a video too. Only you can't watch it on the internet. It's Jesus. He was our example. And he showed us exactly how to live the life that God's calling us to live. So, sometimes we think we have a lot of rules and we have a lot of things we have to obey. But all we have to do is follow what God has set for us. He's chosen all of the ingredients, and they're all in here. He's given us the directions. They're all in here. And he's given us the example in Jesus. And if we follow that, just like if we follow a good recipe, we'll be blessed. We'll have good food and good fellowship. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have given us the recipe for a life that is pleasing to you, a life that is full of love and grace. We thank you that you have gathered everything we need and given us an example. Help us to follow the recipe truly so that we can be blessed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this passage is another doozy. <laughs> Please help us to hear from you as we listen to your word, as I speak these words. Um, I pray that you will be the focus and you will help us to understand what you want us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to more awkward questions or conversations with Pastor Jen. <laughs> I'm actually really happy, none of our visitors came back from last week, but I'm really happy to see <laughs> as many people here <laughs> as there are. Um, that's great. Last week's sermon was kind of uh, interesting, and today we get to talk about submission. Yeah, so this passage, um, either that or they might go a different direction than I'm possibly gonna I don't know we'll see so this passage is famously known as the household codes and what it the outline looks like if you read it from chapter 5 verse 21 through chapter 6 verse 9 as we did um, it looks like the outline is wives submit children submit slaves submit Well, there is something about husbands in there, and we will get to that. But it doesn't say husbands submit directly. Um, so the thing that makes this passage really challenging is, one of the things, is that it has led to a boatload of misinterpretations in different ways throughout history. There are some that are live and active right now in our time, and there are some other ones, there are some other, been some other ways that it's been translated or applied or interpreted in other times in history or in other cultures that also don't quite get it right. But the way that it has often played out in our larger culture 
is people go to this passage when they are trying to justify misogyny, which is mistreatment of women, or assuming that women are somehow lower beings, justification of child abuse, including the emotional abuse of adult children. I've recently been talking to a few people who grew up in the church, they're Christians, and they are really struggling with how to interpret honor your father and mother as adult children of parents who have been and still are emotionally abusive to them. Um, so this is a real thing, and this passage gets used in that way. Um, and it has also been used to justify slavery. There are a whole lot of people out there who think that the Apostle Paul supports slavery. We're going to focus mostly on the husbands and wives section of this because we could probably literally do a sermon on each one of these groups. Um, they're all super important, but for today we're going to focus on the first pairing uh, mostly. But what are our options for dealing with a passage like this? How do we, what do we do with it? We could skip it. Okay, don't, don't take advantage of how, how something's written. I like it. Okay, pray and jump in. Yeah. Right. Also taking into consideration the time it was written, which in some ways is actually pretty similar to ours. Um, we're gonna, we'll talk about that. I think the, the other thing, this probably connects closest with Sandy's, um, we need to remember that Jesus is the point. If you read this whole passage very carefully, you can see, especially the first part, you can see the Apostle Paul is talking about Jesus, really. The Jesus is the point, and if Jesus is the point, we always have to, when, we, when we're trying to interpret a passage of Scripture, think about, okay, what was Jesus actually like? If somehow wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives has something to do with Jesus, well, what, how did Jesus relate to people? What, does, what did his relationships look like? I think Barb's message in a basket was great. If you tune out what I'm saying right now and just want to focus on what Barb said, Jesus is the point, and I think that is completely valid. Also, keep in mind this passage that we read for our responsive reading, 1 John 4. Love comes from God. Fear makes love go away. There is no fear in love. If it's truly love, there's no fear. And so that doesn't leave room for the abusive kinds of ways that passages like this have been interpreted and applied. But... If you're like me, you want to dig a little bit deeper into this passage and say, okay, so how, how does Jesus play into this? What is this actually, what is Paul really saying? Is he actually a misogynistic jerk like many of us have read that he is? So like Rand said, we need to remember context. We need to remember historical context, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but we also need to think about the context of the book of Ephesians. As I worked on this this week, I thought, how come this passage has been applied in all these different ways that seem to completely ignore the setting, 
that the passages end. Like, this whole book, we've been, we're at the end of chapter 5 into chapter 6, which is the last chapter of the book, and all the way up until this point, Paul has been writing a letter to Ephesian Christians about how being part of God's family is different than being part of any other family in the world. And that's in his cultural context and time and ours and anybody's. Being part of God's family is different. How is being part of God's family different? Does anybody remember any of the things we've talked about in the past however many weeks? Love one another as God loves us. Yeah. I'll, right. We, are, we have put off our old selves and we put on a new self. We're united. Yes. One of you looked like you were about to say something. but <laughs> Here's some other things that Paul has been saying in this book. We have a good father who dearly loves us, all of us. We have been reconciled by that father, with that Father by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our trust in him. We have been reconciled to each other without distinction. That means regardless of gender, age, race, social status, wealth, we have been reconciled to each other and to God through Jesus Christ, all of us. We have God's own spirit. If we have trusted in Jesus, we have God's own spirit merging with our spirits to empower us to think like Jesus, speak like Jesus, act like Jesus. We live our lives from a basis of humility, gentleness, patience, love, and peace. Those are hard things to achieve on our own, and the, they are really hard to find outside of a community of Jesus. We also, more recently, we've learned we steward our words well, we keep control of our anger, we are kind and generous, we are given authority over the powers and no longer have to answer to any idol, including sex, obscenity, lust, or substance abuse, as God helps us. So why, if all of those things are true, and if Paul has just spent his whole letter saying all that, why in the whole wide world, after telling us that, would he suddenly contradict all of it and tell a patriarchal enslaving society, which is what he was living in, to do what they were already doing before they trusted Christ. Why would he tell them to? Lorna gets what I'm saying. Do you get what I'm saying? <laughs> it makes no sense. And this just, I've just been wondering all week, how... How is this the first time I've realized this? It's because I've never looked at Ephesians this closely before. But also, how come nobody, I've never heard anybody else say it like this. Here's the real outline of this passage. Paul is addressing three groups of people where there is, in his culture, but also in the world in general throughout time, there is a power differential. He starts in each block, he starts with the least powerful member of the pair as we experience it in the world. So in the, in the marriage, the least powerful one is traditionally the wife. In, 
parent-child relationships, the least powerful one is the child. And in slave-master relationships, the least powerful one is obviously the slave. And we've talked about slavery here before. We don't have time to go into that today, even though it's important. So we, we will interpret the slave-master part as bosses and employees. Um, but there are different ways that you can unpack that. So this is the outline. Paul starts with the least powerful member of the pair, and he tells them to do something which, if you don't read any of the rest of the passage, or if you haven't read any of the rest of the letter, it sounds like he's telling them to do something obvious, which everybody expects these people to do. Of course, wives submit to their husbands, of course. Children obey their parents, of course. And actually, there's a, there's a Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments says to, and of course, slaves obey their masters. But then he flips the expectations and he addresses the more powerful member of each pair with instructions they would not have considered. So Paul is not faking people out in the sense that he really does mean, uh, in some way, and we'll unpack this a little bit, he does mean wives submit to your husbands, children obey your parents, and employees obey your boss. But he's not only saying that. There's more to it than that. And so what it, he's kind of doing is saying, kids, the Ten Commandments tell us to honor our parents, and we should do that. But parents, specifically fathers, make sure you are parents worth honoring, who teach your kids to follow Jesus too, and live like the children of God that we are. Don't exasperate your children to the point that they don't want to have anything to do with you. Honor your children. Yes, you're their parent. Yes, you have authority over them. But treat them in a way that is not going to make them run for the hills when they are free to do that. Slaves or employees, do your work as if you're doing it for Jesus, whether your boss is around or not. The boss, in this case, is sort of irrelevant because you're doing what you need to do for Jesus. It's interesting, our passage actually doesn't say do exactly everything your boss says. It says, obey your boss as in the Lord and do what is right. So the idea is really Jesus is the one that you're answering to. And that should honor your boss. Hopefully your boss is a good boss. But then he says, bosses, treat your employees the same way. That's crazy. <laughs> Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. So it's almost like Paul saying, bosses and employees, listen, it might seem like there's a, a power differential here and for practical purposes, accomplishing whatever the work is that you're trying to do, there is. But actually, in Christ, both of you are answerable to Christ and you are equal. So bosses, do not abuse the people that you are the boss of. In old school patriarchy of the Roman Empire, Women, children, and slaves were property. 
Wives submitted to husbands, children honored parents, slaves obeyed masters, or else. There, this is not about love. There is fear in this. In, the, in contrast to there is no fear in love, there is no love in this type of fear. So what Paul is saying here is actually, it doesn't to our ears, partly because of how people have misused these passages to mistreat people, um, but what Paul is saying here is actually subversive to the status quo of both his time and ours. It is empowering for the underdogs in each of these sets of people, believe it or not. So now we're going to talk to, we're going to transition into the husband and wives part. But first, let's notice verse 21. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here's a little note. I had a conversation with Ron about this this week. Last week, when we read our passage, Ron was reading his out of the Pew Bible, which is an older version of the New, New International Version, which we use. The Bible on this lectern is a newer version. In the Bible, in the NIV version, both of them, you will see a little heading. And those headings in any version of the Bible are not part of the Bible. They are something that translators have put in that is to help you figure out what part of the Bible you're reading. You're, maybe you're looking for, it says somewhere this, oh, here's a heading, that's, maybe it's in here. Um, but they're not inspired scripture. The translators are making an interpretive decision, and they put the headings in there. In the old NIV, the heading goes after submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So you're reading all the stuff we talked about last week about not being immoral and not swearing and not telling dirty jokes and all that stuff. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then there's a heading, and then it goes into wives, submit to your husbands. And it feels like there's a break. But that's not how the Apostle Paul wrote his letter. And in the newer version of the NIV, they have moved where that heading is, so, which is good. So submit to one another out of reverence for Christ is the heading for this section of Ephesians. We just talked before this about unhealthy, ungodly habits and practices and about filling ourselves up instead with the Holy Spirit who changes our perspective from cursing and carousing to gratitude and singing. And so it's like Paul is saying, okay, from that place of self-sacrificial, loving, Holy Spirit joy and gratitude, everybody in this family of God submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. Everybody. All the everybody's that he's been talking about, there being no distinction between in the last four and a half chapters. And so then it's like he's saying, now, so submit to everybody. Everybody submit to everybody out of reverence for Christ. Now I'm going to give you some examples of what that looks like. So, husbands and wives. Note to single people. <laughs> this sermon is still for you. Last week's was also for you, even though we talked about sex and how God's intention for it is within a covenant of marriage. Everybody in the family of God defer to everybody in the family of God out of respect for their and your identity in Jesus. This particular 
thing for husbands and wives is an illustration of that. So, therefore, everybody submit to everybody, therefore, wives, you would defer to your husbands the way that you would defer to Jesus. Here's something to know about the cultural context of Paul's time, and especially of Ephesus. And I apologize in advance, this is going to be a little bit of a longer sermon, but I think it's important. We need, like, we need to know what we're talking about here. So, um, in Ephesus, as we've already said a couple times, there was a religion to the goddess Artemis, or Diana. She was a fertility goddess, and we get hints from other letters of Paul to Timothy, because Timothy was the pastor of the church in Ephesus, that some of the women in Ephesus were a little rowdy, and extra feisty, which isn't necessarily bad, but you can imagine that in a, in a culture where patriarchy dominates, but there's a town where a certain type of pagan feminism is really important, relationships between men and women are probably pretty tense. And so it's kind of like Paul is saying, look, wives, you have a husband. You need to be respectful to him. You need to be loyal to him. You need to be on his team. Do not try to one-up him. Do not try to be the dominant one here. Um, also, in a broader culture where patriarchy is a thing, if wives are expected to submit to their husbands, whether they do or not, Paul is distinguishing this. He's saying, and this is another way that the, the new NIV is a little more accurate, wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Important. He's not saying, women, submit to all men all the time because you're not as good. Sorry. Tough luck. He's saying, wives, consider how you would interact with Jesus and interact with your own husband that way, with that kind of respect, with that kind of openness to who he is and who he's becoming in a way that can help him to accomplish what he needs to accomplish in the world, but also become the man that God is transforming him into. For the husband, it says in verses 23 and 24, is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Good grief. It helps a little, at least, to know that this doesn't have to mean one individual woman has to submit to all men in everything. <laughs> um, but something else that might help, which is new learning to me, is what the term head means in the way that the Apostle Paul uses it. And not in, just in this letter, but across his letters. Um, and I'm going to give you a name and I'm going to spell it. If you want to do any reading 
from somebody who really loves the Bible and loves Jesus and is a thorough scholar, takes the Bible really seriously, but also thinks that possibly cultural and status quo dynamics have affected how we interpret things. Um, there is a woman named, from Australia named Marg Mosco, and her first name is M-A-R-G, and her last name is M-O-W-C-Z-K-O. <laughs> I'll also post that online. Um, but she, writes, she has a blog, and she writes very, very helpful articles on passages like this. So this is something I learned from her. She says, the instructions to husbands in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 are about love, not leadership. And if you look at the passage and you take out the word head at all, you can see the only other word that Paul uses there to instruct the husbands is love. Love, 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 love. Not lead, love. However, that little word, headship, has gotten us confused. There are ways that this passage has been misinterpreted, a few of which are, one is full-on domination. Men are more than women, full stop, and so there's marital abuse and all kinds of horrible things that happen and then are justified because the Bible says that I'm the head. I've heard people say this, and I've seen really bad results for this. There's another way to interpret this that comes from the last verse of this husband and wife section. Men want respect and women want love. I used to say this all the time. I used to, this used to be how I would justify this passage um, when I hadn't spent as much time with it, with the Holy Spirit, and I thought, yeah, men typically want to be respected and women do typically want love, but I have since realized that I don't feel loved if I don't feel respected. And that idea is often a cop-out. Because you can call a whole lot of things love that are not loving and not respect the person. And I suspect that men don't necessarily feel respected if they don't know that there is some love behind it, some kind of um, support and desire for well-being. Then there's this other interpretation, and I feel like this is the best-hearted way. Men and women are equal members. The, the husband and wife are equal members of the marriage, but when there's a disagreement and both have been praying, the husband's decision is the one that, that goes. We need to go with that. We don't have time to explain all the complicated dynamics of that, but I feel like if a husband and wife can't come to a, an agreement and they're both praying, just keep praying. <laughs> if, it's the whole, if you're both listening to the Holy Spirit, eventually you're going to get on the same page, and it doesn't make sense to have an external, this is the rule, it's always the husband's choice. Sometimes, sometimes the wife is hearing better. It just <laughs> Sometimes that's the truth. Not always, but sometimes that's how it is. I think we, we use, this passage doesn't say anything about making decisions. I think we 
make it say that because that's the best way that we can come up with to understand why Paul is saying the husband is the head of the wife. Unless the head doesn't mean what we thought. So, we have talked about heads in this sermon series before, right? Who or what is the head? Go ahead, Sam. <laughs> right. Remember bobblehead Jesus? We're baby, baby church, and Jesus is the head. And <laughs> you don't like that? Oh, yeah. Well, so what is, so though, thinking about that, what is the nature of Jesus as the head? He's the goal. God's nature is love. You said love, too, right? To the point of what? Yes. If we are giving up yourself, if we are a baby body on Jesus' fully formed head, as we've said before, that is a whole lot of humility for Jesus to have, right? He gave himself up, made himself nothing, taking on the very form of a servant, and becoming like a servant, he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. This is the nature of Jesus, the head of the church. Does any of that sound like leadership? Yes, by example, right. So the word that Paul uses in this case is a Greek word, kephale, and he only uses this in two different passages, this one and in Colossians. And he never, even though he always relates it to Jesus, he's never using it to talk about leadership as in authority. He has other words, other Greek words that he can use for that, and he uses those words when he talks about leadership and authority. In English, when we talk about the head of something, we mean the boss. But in Ephesians and some of Paul's other letters, Jesus, when, when Paul talks about Jesus being the head, he's not in that case talking about authority. He is talking about connection and priority. So Jesus came first. When a baby is born, if the uh, delivery is healthy and goes according to plan, that head comes out first. And in the creation story, the man was created first, but there wasn't a difference, we've talked about this in the previous sermon, there wasn't a difference of importance or level between the man and the woman in the creation story, even though the man was created first. He was just created first. Jesus, in many passages in Paul's letters, Jesus is described as being the firstborn from the dead, or the first in, of overall creation, or the first, so yes, he is the leader, he does have authority, but in this case, when we're talking about that, we're not talking about authority, we are talking about who came first, and also unity. So in the Roman society that Paul's writing in, in the Roman Greek society, the husband, the man, was the starter of the family. Women didn't initiate these families, men did. This is why in the beginning of Ephesians, when it talks about being adopted as sons, the sons in this patriarchal society 
had the rights of adoption. Girls probably didn't get adopted. Anyway, they wouldn't have had the rights of sons. And so when Paul says, all of you, men, women, everybody, all, all the people who trust in Jesus Christ, have the right of sons, he's not making a, a social statement. He's just using a term to describe the rights that we have in Christ, the rights that a son in the Roman Empire would have had. So, a head and a body do not function without each other. The point of Paul's analogy of the head here is unity, which we've talked about already in this book. Connection. You could have a head and nothing, then it's just a head. <laughs> Gross. You could have a body, and I mean, maybe if the headless horseman story were true, the body could do something, but we know it's not. So, head and body not connected, dead, right? In building a community in the first place, Jesus humbled himself to be a head to this crazy body, and he gives us authority. It is the Holy Spirit who unites us to him and is kind of like the synapses between the brain and the rest of the body. The Holy Spirit brings the messages back and forth between the body and the head, so we are of one accord with Jesus. So, here's a note to single people. Where single people are called to be the embodied expression of Jesus, he is their head and they are his body, individually and in community with the church. And by the way, we really should, the church in general really should do a better job of not just not marginalizing single people, not just including them, but honoring single people because single people have a role and a metaphor that they are living out that is really intense. I think this is why Paul says in Corinthians that being single is better. There's pros and cons to both, let's just say. But single people are kind of straight, no chaser, direct connection with God. Married people are the message in a basket version. <laughs> we are supposed to be a visual example of what the head-body connection between Christ and the church looks like. Uh, Dr. Mosco says, Many Greek philosophers and writers, such as Plutarch, taught that husbands are the leaders and rulers of their wives. In contrast, no Bible author, including Paul, tells husbands to be the leader, ruler, or authority of their wives. Rather than using any of the many Greek words which mean ruler, leader, or authority, Paul used the word kephale, with body, to highlight the connectedness of husband and wife. Paul wanted husbands to be connected and allied with their wives, and he instructed wives to be cooperative, supportive, and loyal, submissive, to their own husbands. He wrote that husbands and wives should be joined, united, one flesh. Unity, affinity, fidelity, and equality are the ideals in Christian marriage. These qualities were absent in many marriages in Greco-Roman society, so Paul found it necessary to write about the godly ideals of marriage in his letter. We get stuck on the wives submit part, and that makes sense because it doesn't sound good. Um, and 
it's really in the Bible, and it's important. But we miss a few things. We miss that we're all supposed to submit. We miss the humility, gentleness, patience, grace, love, and peace from a couple chapters before, which is what submission looks like in followers of Jesus. We miss that it's the wives who are told to submit to their own husbands. They get to choose, though. Paul does not say, wives submit to your husbands in everything. Husbands, make sure your wife does that. No. He says, husbands, love your wives as self-sacrificially as Christ loved the church. We miss, when we fixate on the wives submit part, we miss the beauty and togetherness of the relationship that Paul is trying to describe here. We miss the kind of husband that these husbands are supposed to be becoming that wives are encouraged to submit to. Ideally, one who is like Jesus. And Paul does in this passage what he has been doing throughout this book. He keeps getting sidetracked by Jesus. He says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then he goes off on this tangent of how Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He washed her like you wash yourself if you care for your body. Didn't beat himself up. He got beaten up, but he washed her. When we submit to Jesus' baptism, we clean up good. But it's he who is doing the washing. In the same way, though, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Some husbands have thought that it's their duty to save and morally clean up their wives by ordering them around. But it's not the husband's job to do that. Just to love her. Jesus is the one who cleans up the wife and the husband, and he does it way more lovingly than any of these misled husbands do. Paul says, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Jesus left his home with the father and united to humanity. The kind of unity he came to forge with us is the kind that married couples need to be growing in, growing in, expressing to each other. And that unity does not have a hierarchy. This is a profound mystery, says Paul, but I am talking about Christ and the church. It is a profound mystery. That is what we're talking about, too. The mystery is Jesus, God himself, wants to be in a relationship with us where he came first, and he leads the way in that sense, but there's not really a hierarchy. He doesn't actually want a hierarchy. When he wants a relationship with us where we're not obeying God, but we are operating in complete unity with our head by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a difference. There, in the next two groups, which we don't have time to talk about, but um, children and parents... Yeah, children and parents and employees and bosses, those people are told to obey. But wives are not told to obey their husbands. We are to be mutually submissive to each other. We are to love each other. We are to respect each other. And we're to operate in this way 
that Christ and the church are supposed to operate, where the Holy Spirit is giving us what Christ wants us to do, and we're doing it. And we are representing humanity back to God. This is Jesus' prayer in John 17. This is part of it. And this is our prayer before we go to our communion hymn and the communion table. Jesus prayed, I pray for all those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me.